The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead on The Exchange, it's crunch time down in Washington. Hours before the deadline, there's movement to reach a deal to avoid a government shutdown. But it ain't over yet. We'll have the latest on the budget wrangling, the infrastructure bill, and the countdown for raising the debt ceiling. The headlines have been coming in fast and furious all morning long. Plus, the everything shortage. There's a shortage of workers, of shipping capacity, and even of paper. The CEO of Shutterfly on how they're grappling with all of that as we enter the most crucial time of year. Remember, holiday cards. Better order them now. We'll talk about it. And at any cost, China orders state suppliers to secure energy at any cost as the winter approaches. We'll look at those shortages, the surge in prices, and the investing risks in energy and our very special energy edition of Rapid Fire. But we do begin with the stock markets, and Dom Chu is here with those numbers. All right, so Kelly, this time around, it's a bit of a flip from the old narrative over the last week because we had talked about the extreme underperformance of the S&P 500 and NASDAQ Composite specifically versus the Dow Today, it's a little bit different. The real underperformance is coming via the Dow and some of the more industrial material type oriented names. That's the reason why the Dow industrials are near their session lows down about 440 points or one and a quarter percent downside. The S&P 500 still above 4,300, 4,323, the last trade there off a little over three quarters of one percent. And the Nasdaq Composite is actually the winner today, if you will, only down about one quarter of one percent, 33 points there. 14,478, the last trade there. And just to give you some context about the trading range we've seen so far at the highs of the session, we were up 23 handles points on the S&P 500, down about 44 at the lows. So you can see tilting a little bit here more towards the lows of the session, at least for the time being. It is the end of the month, a September to remember or to forget for some of the bulls out there. You can see the energy sector, the only one in positive territory So for for the month of September here, financials are in second place. They're down 2%. And communication services, materials, some other ones jockeying for that last place role right now. So communication services among the worst performers. And then if you want to watch it, the stock of the day, it's got to be not an S&P 500 one, but it's Bed Bath & Beyond. The, The results were disappointing, yes. They cut their forecast, yes. But the commentary about why, supply chain issues, materials costs, the inflationary picture all rolling together in that story. The shares are off their lows, by the way, only down 22 percent. They were off much more in the session, but still one of those meme stocks. Remember, Kel, back in the day, pushing around 50 bucks a share, now back down to 1731. I'll send things back over to you. Wow, down 22 percent now. That's a huge disappointment for those investors. Dom, thank you very much. My next guest says this market pullback lately has created an attractive entry point for some stocks and sectors poised for a breakout. Let's welcome in David Katz. He's chief investment officer at Matrix Asset Advisors. I doubt Bed Bath is one of your names, David. Happily, it is not. What do you look at in this environment and think this is the breakout time? And, you know, I would maybe kind of pick up on yesterday where, you know, we spoke with uh, people who think rates are going up and the economy is going to hang in there, but had very different ways to play it. You know, uh, there's sort of one group who's looking more at the energy and commodity space and another group looking more at financials and industrials. And I'm curious where you would be. 
Well, we think the key to success now is to take a longer term time horizon. There have been 34 corrections of greater than 5% since 1993. And the critical point is on 31 of them, which were the lighter corrections, you fully got back to your highs within two or three months. So we think that's going to be the case this time. And what that means is you want to be buying into days like today. We think it's a very good opportunity. And we think there are a lot of places in the market that represent very good opportunity over the next six to 12 months. Uh, industrials have been beaten up on those supply issues. Uh, we think there are lots of opportunities in there. A company like FedEx has just been maimed over the last mm -hmm. month. And what you're hearing in the last few days is many companies are having the same problems that FedEx is having. Uh, they were just penalized the worst because they were the first ones to have it. It's at 11 times earnings. Rest assured, they will get their act together, and there's tremendous demand. That's I'm, the type of thing we'd look at. Sure, and I'm glad you mentioned FedEx because it's really emblematic of what's going on right now. A company that you think would be benefiting more than any from so many of the trends in the economy and yet is suffering. So do you think the suffering is unwarranted or is it just that they're going to sort things out 2022? Maybe you think we turn a corner here and how much of a read through are they to other parts of the economy? You know, it's not dissimilar. Some of the issues and challenges they're facing with a company like Bed Bath and so many others. The whole sub theme of the show today is about supply chain problems. Right. So they're facing the exact same issues. They were just the first ones to face it. We think that they have some of the best logistics in the world. They have labor shortages. We think that that is going to be corrected. But the key is you're getting it at 11 times earnings. So companies can have disappointments. But when they're at 11 times earnings, we like to look beyond the current disappointment, look at them on the long term. They will get their act together, whether it's in the next six months or nine months. It's going to happen, and this stock easily should be at 15 or 16 times earnings. We think you're going to hear more disappointments about inflation and also logistics. So be prepared, but if you can buy a company at the right price, you're going to do very well regardless. I see here you also think uh, some of the financials like BNY Mellon, M&T Bank, State Street are upward trending. But I, I wonder if you could elaborate if I turn to healthcare, which is more and more becoming common uh, in terms of places people uh, on the show want to be. Why is healthcare you think now at some kind of breakout point? Well, healthcare has done pretty miserably over the last year, and the stocks as a result are selling a pretty modest valuation because the earnings have been going up, the dividends have been going up, but the stock prices have been languishing. So we think you can buy some very good healthcare companies like an Amgen or a CVS or a Merck at 10 to 12 times earnings. And we think when the environment is a little bit tougher, people are going to pay more attention to that. Uh, they're not going to have the logistics problems. Uh, they're able to handle inflation. So we think that their earnings are going to be more dependable in an environment where there are going to be a lot of disappointments. Uh, and we think they're just simply too cheap. They've been overlooked and shouldn't be. So now that you've sketched out where you see opportunity, maybe explain why you wouldn't be in a name like Bed Bath and who else would be in that category for you of parts of the market that you think might not have attractive entry points. So we think there's tremendous liquidity. And as a result, a lot of stocks have gotten very, very richly priced. The meme stocks, a lot of the high tech growth companies at 50 or 100 times earnings. That's where we're most concerned. We think that uh, ultimately gravity affects uh, stocks with, if the valuations are too excessive. Uh, we think there are going to be a lot of companies that will disappoint uh, because of some of these inflation issues. Uh, and the way to not get hurt is to avoid the really high priced companies. So we tend to avoid companies over 40 or 50 times earnings. There are a lot of them out there today. Uh, we would avoid the more speculative names, the concept stocks, because uh, when the market gets a little bit more focused on fundamentals, they've got a lot of downside. You're seeing that in a bed bath today. Yeah. So you don't want FedEx to be the next meme stock. <laughs> uh, no, I think we're safe on that. Yeah. <laughs> David, thanks for your time today. It's good to see you.
Great to be here. Have a good day. David Katz with Matrix Asset Advisors. Now to the latest in Washington with Congress in the middle of a high stakes standoff and the mansion headlines coming in fast and furious. Let's get to Elon Moy for all the latest today. Elon? Well, Kelly, so many twists and turns here on Capitol Hill today, including new details of Senator Joe Manchin's parameters for supporting that $3.5 trillion social spending package. Now, I've been able to confirm that Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer signed a document outlining Manchin's desire to bring that price tag down to $1.5 trillion. He also had a laundry list of other demands, including a 25% corporate rate, a 15% corporate minimum tax, a 28% all-in rate for capital gains and a 39.6% top individual rate. He also wanted the Federal Reserve to end quantitative easing, which of course Congress has no control over. However, it does show you some of the complicated political dynamics that are at play here on Capitol Hill as Democratic leadership tries to appease both flanks of their party. Now, some of those similar calculations are underway in the House as well, which is still planning to vote on that bipartisan infrastructure bill today, even though it is unclear that it will pass. Now, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has been holed up in her office for just about the past hour, meeting with moderates and progressives. She says the only option in her mind is winning this vote. And Kelly, she told reporters uh, that these last-minute negotiations, that's the fun part. Back over to you. Oh, my goodness. I am. Somehow I find anything that is fun in Washington sort of scares me. Uh, but Elon, great insight into what's happening at, at, minute by minute as we speak. And we really appreciate it. Maybe we'll check back in with you very, very soon. Our next guest says the Democratic Party infighting could sink the infrastructure vote today. Chris Kruger is here. He's Washington Research Group strategist over at Cowan. Chris, although Pelosi's not, she's a kind of lawmaker, I think she has often said she doesn't bring anything to a vote that's not going to pass. That's exactly right. I mean, it's it's still our base case that this will probably be delayed later tonight. But, you know, she still has, you know, eight hours on the clock. So why why would you wave the white flag now? Uh, but p- following Manchin's comments and following the comments from, um, you know, House progressives, uh, plus sort of the blockade from House Republicans, uh, it seems increasingly unlikely that it'll be held tonight. But that's not, you know, the end of the world at all. It'll just sort of the process will continue. Uh, the bipartisan infrastructure framework and the reconciliation bill will, you know, be recoupled and we'll be probably talking about this up to Thanksgiving. Up to Thanksgiving. I mean, the, the broader sort of context here is that this is the chance for President Biden to really you know, kind of set the tone for what his agenda, what his first year in office is going to accomplish, right? So it seems to me that there's this war. Is it going to be infrastructure or is it going to be a marquee budget bill with a lot of, uh, you know, wishlist items for progressives? Obviously, they don't want it to be none of the above. Uh, so what's your latest thinking here? Yeah, right. Well, I mean, you know, this is sort of the, the silly season in Washington, September. You know, the sky is yellow, the sun's blue. But at the end of the day, we think it'll be pretty much everything. Um, you know, call it $550 billion in new spend on, quote unquote, hard infrastructure, then that reconciliation bill, somewhere in the two and a half trillion dollar range, uh, that sort of green infrastructure, human infrastructure, right? It's it's infrastructure year, and it's on the heels of one point nine trillion in in March, the stimulus checks and and others. So, provided it gets done, that's a that's a big first year. But when you look back, uh, President Obama, President Trump, their landmark bills didn't get done until late Q four, and with Obama. Uh, really, it was it was late Q5 of, of, you know, the spring of the following year. So 
you know, pretty, pretty much, you know, par for the course. All right. That's really helpful. And I notice here that as you're talking about some of the, the time frames or deadlines they might be thinking about, that the U.N. Climate Change Conference is one of them November 1st. And, you know, that it's probably important that the White House is able to go and say, hey, look, here's what we're doing in the U.S. and, you know, these big initiatives. But sort of my current obsession, I think increasingly the obsession uh, with with markets, Chris, and I want to ask what you think is going to happen politically in Washington is with this energy price spike. I mean, it's it's getting kind of scary. And in the U.S., we're a little bit more insulated than the rest of the world. But if we start seeing bills spike or worse, if there are shortages, you know, for heating and other things heading into the winter, how could that complicate all of these efforts that you're describing? Yeah, you know, um, well, you know, typically when there are crises or problems in Washington, sort of the, the typical response is to throw money at the problem. Um, not all the time, but you know, mm -hmm. I think what what you'll see with Democrats, the closer we get to, you know, end of year, whether that's Thanksgiving, the climate change conference, et cetera, and you're also going to have a new deadline with December third, right? That's when the government funding will expire. You know, really, kind of, I, I think a, a clarity that Mansion's statement today didn't didn't resolve too many questions. I think a lot of the numbers that Mansion had in that draft. Are, are pretty much base case for most investors. So, you know, these things always look like they are a disaster. And then sort of, you know, right at the last second, it, you, you come together. That's just yeah. sort of how, unfortunately, the, the, the process works. No, and you're quite right when you say, you know, throw money at it one way or the other here. Just a quick final comment, then. Are we to assume the same will happen with debt ceiling? What's the drop dead date at this point, what Yellen is talking about? Well, so Secretary Yellen has put the X date at October 18th. I think it's important to note, though, that that's not a date that the U.S. would default. That's just the date that the Treasury can't give 100 percent certainty of of matching the inflows and the outflows. So in reality, you're probably talking Halloween. At the end of the day, though, we're, we're reasonably confident that this will be a, a, a second reconciliation bill, uh, a debt component. The Democrats can raise this by themselves. Um, it does seem like Senator Schumer wants to sort of attempt to, to beat Senator McConnell, you know, over the head with sort of accusations of, of hypocrisy. That generally doesn't work with Senator McConnell. So I think at the end of the day, you'll, you'll see a, a reconciliation raise uh, and the debt ceiling will be raised like it always is. All right. Well, we, great clarification on a number of these points, Chris, that uh, market's watching very closely. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much. Chris Kruger with the Cowan Group. Still ahead, it's been a volatile week for Nat Gas, surging 10% on Monday, falling 7% yesterday, and then testing new highs today in parts of the globe as China doubles down on its demand. What it all means for the winter and Bank of America's warning for the northeastern U.S. But first, shares of hair care company Olaplex are surging in their trading debut today after pricing above an already raised range. Here's the team ringing the opening bell at the NASDAQ just a short while ago. Up next, we'll speak with the CEO about the debut and their consumer. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? 
Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Shares of hair care company Olaplex are trading about 19 percent higher in their trading debut on the Nasdaq today. The share is priced at 21. It's currently around 25. And the 21 dollar mark was even above the 17 to 19 expected range. Joining me now for a first on CBC interview is Olaplex president and CEO Julie Wong. Julie, congratulations and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I want to talk about the technology here. You guys have over 100 patents. You're the number one hair care brand at Sephora. What makes your products different from everything else that's out there on shelves? Well, truly, if you think about it, we, have, we are a patented, potent, and proven hair care technology system. And what really differentiates us is that by having those kind of equity, we are able to really get your hair to its healthiest state possible. And that, I think, is what 91% of women who are searching for something to, that they have damaged their hair with for a solution, and we are their solution. You created this category, the bond building category, back in 2014. What's bond building? Well, if you think about it, your hair has a lot of disulfide bonds. And when you go through any kind of damage, whether it's in salon services like chemical bleaching and lightening, or just in the environment with the pollution or the light refracting off your laptops, environmental, like I say, pollution, as well as uh, mechanical when you comb your hair, and just normal cause of aging, hormonal. Those cause your bonds to be damaged. And what we do is we relink those broken bonds. How do you do that? What was the research and development involved? And why couldn't other companies catch up? Well, we have a technology that basically what happens is any time when your bonds are broken, your cuticles are exposed, and it is important that cuticle get repaired. And with that, we have had patents that, you know, with the 103 patents that we have, really helps to address that. And because of those patents, it is very difficult for a competitor to come in and try to make that, you know, part of their system. How big could you grow? And do you face any bottlenecks right now? Because I think Kohl's this morning was actually just downgraded, and Kohl's has a lot of Sephora locations at its stores, and obviously the number one hair care brand at Sephora. Because of these supply chain issues, is today's environment more difficult to grow and scale in? Well, for us, what we have a competitive advantage of is that we are very, our SKU count is very tight, our distribution is very disciplined, and so as a result, any time that there's a supply chain issue, we are ahead of the curve because we control the relationships that we have with our manufacturers, with our suppliers, and with all of our raw material vendors. 
Can you also, as a sort of final comment, tell me about uh, profit margins? And, you know, with the kind of product you have, I have to imagine you have a decent amount of room to raise prices. Uh, your end consumer might be in pretty good shape, especially if they have exposure to the stock market and things like that this year. So have they generally been expanding or do you face the same headwinds uh, some of the other companies we've been discussing are? So if you th- look at it in our S1, you saw that our gross margin is very healthy. And the reason why that is, is that we are able to be very efficient Again, like with our supply chain, with our R&D and with our product development, I believe that as long as we can, we can continue to deliver on those performances, there's no need for us to uh, work on um, anything in terms of pricing because our quality is already speaking for itself and we feel like ultimately the consumer is going to vote with their wallet. If they are willing to pay up, they will show us. But at this point in time, we are very happy serving them with what they want and what they need. 71% adjusted EBITDA margin, if I read that right. So That's correct, yes. And the gross margin is even higher. 80-something. 80, yes. 80 uh, pretty yes. good position to be in for an environment like this. Jui, thanks for joining us, and congrats again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Jui Wong is the president and CEO of Olaplex. Still ahead, it's not just gifts you might want to order early this year. Given all the supply problems, you might want to send your cards out early, too. The CEO of Shutterfly joins us to discuss that and a whole lot more next. Also, Maine is making it official, becoming the first state to require consumer packaging companies to pay for their recycling. It could have a big impact on the likes of Amazon and Walmart. The details coming up on The Exchange. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back to The Exchange, friends. Let's check on the markets where the Nasdaq, oh, a second ago it was positive and now it's down by two points. But there you have it. The Dow still down by 420, so vastly different depending on which of the averages you're looking at today. The S&P in the middle down 30 points, about three quarters of 1%. Let's take a look at oil, losing a majority of its earlier gains. Here's WTI crude still around the $75 mark, but about to go red on the day. This after Reuters is reporting that OPEC Plus, that includes Russia, is considering options for releasing more oil to the market at next week's meeting. We will have to talk about that in Energy Rapid Fire in just a moment. In the meantime, here are some of the other movers we're watching this hour. Netflix is continuing its run this week after announcing the purchase of a video game company. The stock hitting an all-time intraday high today. It's trading at nearly $613 a share, up about 2%, and the only FANG stock in the green this month. AMD getting a nice bump today. The company saying it's expanded its partnership with Google Cloud for the use of some of its processors. There's a 3% gain. They're closing out the month down 7%, but still up 10% for the quarter, also outpacing its competitors. And shares of coal, I mentioned this a moment ago, but they're getting hit today after a double downgrade to underperform from buy at Bank of America. That's a pretty big move. And the bank is saying reduced receipts from supply chain issues could hinder coal sales recovery and offset progress the team is making in a number of departments. This is a 12 percent drop for KSS today. Let's get to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour on Capitol Hill. Three Democratic Congresswomen offering their own deeply personal testimony about their abortions. They did it during a hearing on how to respond to conservative states passing strict new laws limiting abortion access. 
Some Republicans slamming the hearing by the Oversight Committee, saying that it had no jurisdiction in this area. Tips from the search for Gabby Petito have led to the discovery of another body in an unrelated case. Officials say that it matches the description of 46-year-old Robert Lowry from Houston. The father of two has been missing since late August. The body was found in the same area of a Wyoming park as Petito's body. And federal officials have been quietly preparing for what could be the biggest surge of migrants at the U.S. southern border in decades. Homeland Security officials laying plans for a worst-case scenario of 350 to 400,000 migrants crossing the border next month if a court stops the administration from using COVID rules to block entry. And on the news, what could cause a new surge and how officials are getting ready? That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Kelly, you're now up to date. I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you very much. Surging prices, short supply, and a tax break for renewables. All that and more is coming up in today's very special energy edition of Rapid Fire. It's right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should definitely be on your radar right now. It's time for a very special energy-themed edition of Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines today, Halima Croft is head of global commodity strategy at RBC Capital Markets and a CNBC contributor. Dan Pickering is founder and CIO at Pickering Energy Partners. And Gina Sanchez is CEO of Chantico Global and a CNBC contributor. I'm really, really uh, glad to have you guys all on board. Let's begin with prices. Uh, all of them Broadly speaking, energy complex are on the rise as demand outstrips supply and global markets tighten. A volatile session today for WTI crude. We had this big spike around 11 a.m. on these headlines out of China that they're reportedly directing top energy firms to secure supplies for the winter, quote, at all costs. You can see the big spike there now almost negative on the session after uh, Reuters reported that OPEC Plus is considering plans to release more supply at its next meeting. West Texas, Arbob Gas, both up more than 50 percent this year. Oil around 75 a barrel. Nat gas has more than doubled, hitting levels not seen since 2014. Halima, my question here is how much higher can prices go? And I wonder if OPEC is starting to give us some answer if they're already thinking about blinking here. Well, I mean, the meetings taking place on Monday, it does not surprise me at all that OPEC Plus is considering putting additional barrels on the market. The Saudi oil minister very much sees himself as a central banker of oil, and I think he will be very concerned about the potential inflationary effects if Saudi Arabia does not put more barrels on this market. They'll be watching very closely whether demand for oil will increase because of the gas crisis that we're seeing in Europe and in Asia. So the demand for oil for substitution is likely to rise, putting higher pressure on prices. Halima, here's my question for everybody who's now piling in on the energy trade because they realize that there's a squeeze right now. Oil, and this is, I think, what was so confusing about the gas, uh, gasoline and diesel situation in Britain. There was no fuel shortage. There was a truck driver shortage. So in the case of oil, I mean, we're already talking about them expanding supply, right? I, I just wonder if you really want to be, you know, how long this trade you really want to be. I mean, Kelly, we've actually had a very serious crisis when it comes to natural gas into Europe and right. in Asia. We had unseasonably cold weather in the wintertime, drawing LNG supplies into Asia. We have historically low inventories in Europe. We've had problems with supply, Norwegian gas, Netherlands gas, Russian gas flows have been lower. So we have had this situation where there has been a shortage of natural gas in Europe. And there are real concerns about what happens if there's an unseasonably cold winter this time around, because the options of getting more gas into Europe and into Asia looks particularly limited right now. Right. And that's what makes it confusing. We have nat gas where there, there definitely is a shortage. Gasoline and diesel where 
it seems to be more supply distribution problem. They have more choices to expand supply right now. Dan, let's get you to weigh in here. Uh, very, very curious, which parts of the energy complex in particular you'd be long right now? Or is it all of them? Yeah, so you've got inflationary pressures in general, uh, Kelly, that I think we've got to be careful about. You've, you, you're hearing it now, country-on-country competition for the molecules. So uh, realistically, with prices where they are, I'd have to say I like oil more than I like gas, both U.S. and, and global, simply really? because I think we've got a better, we've got a better supply response likely uh, in natural gas. <laughs> Winter, there'll be a risk premium. Um, I'd be long everything. I'd just be a little skeptical of, of the duration of the price move in natural gas relative to the strength in oil. So why do you think, Dan, that we can meet the nat gas need quicker or maybe easier than we can uh, with gasoline and oil? Yeah, I, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say quick. I'd say quicker. I think you've got a, uh, OPEC as a, as a governor of the oil market. And um, so I think that they can manage those prices a little bit better. On the gas side, I just think we'll, we'll wind up seeing some supply response. And the real issue here is inventories in winter. And so as we move into winter, if it's cold, all bets are off. If it's not, we're going to come back more to a normalized price. I think we've got a better floor. We're not going to two bucks. We're going to three bucks in the U.S. We're not going to, you know, five bucks in, in Europe. We'll go to seven, but a better floor, but a little more volatility. Yeah, but a huge downside. If, you know, anyone who's buying, you know, traders who are on the long side of nat gas right now, what you're describing would be, you know, losing 70 percent, you know, if we reset back down lower, depending on whether you're talking about Europe or the U.S. So I hope you're right. But it's also, I think, maybe a huge risk for those who might be thinking about being long some of these names. Oh, all right. Hang on. Hang on. We got to go to Washington for this uh, this vote. We'll come right back to this. We've got some breaking news. Elon Moy, what's the latest over on Capitol Hill? Well, Kelly, the Senate now has the votes to pass a bill that would fund the government through December the 3rd. It needed 60 votes to pass. So far, it has at least 63 in favor, 24 against, bipartisan support here. The next step would be for the bill to head to the House and then over to the president's desk for his signature before the midnight deadline. Just before this vote began, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said that on the debt limit, Democrats might be willing to move forward by themselves in the face of Republican opposition, perhaps signaling that they'd be willing to take that reconciliation path that they've been resisting for so long. That's a dynamic that will likely play out next week. But for now, the Senate is set to pass that short-term funding bill that will keep the lights on in the government through December the 3rd. Back over to you. Excellent. Elon, thank you very much. Uh, our Elon Moy. Dan, let me quickly end it off with you. Just rattle off some of the names that you do like in the energy space here. Yeah, I think I think we're bullish generally on the sector. You've got 10% free cash yields in a number of the upstream producers, particularly out in the Permian, names like Diamondback Energy, Pioneer Resources, um, Devon Energy. So to me, the, the producers of the commodity are the real winners here. They're very inexpensive. Those are my favorites. Chevron would be my favorite big cap. All right. Uh, Gina, let's do a final comment on oil before we tell some of the net gas story. Uh, in the oil space, where are you kind of when you think about the price of the commodity, when you think about uh, some of the big cap names, the picks that Dan just mentioned? So, you know, the price of commodity tends to spike up very quickly and then take its time coming down. And I think that's where we are right now. Um, and so this sort of, you know, trying to jump on the back of oil prices, the, the curves are all backwardated at this point. They are really forecasted lower. Uh, prices going into 2022. 
Um, but you can still play some of this, as Jeff said, on the, on the upstream side. We've been playing it at Exxon all year um, at Lido Advisors. And so I think, you know, Exxon has, has announced new discoveries and they're continuing to bring um, new capacity online, and that's one of the money. All right. Let's quickly mention, uh, we've just been talking about some of the dynamics driving oil here, uh, but there's a big problems with natural gas as well. Um, so shortages Halima was describing earlier, it's not just overseas, though. According to Bank of America, today the eastern U.S. could experience, quote, a no notable energy shortage this winter thanks to supply issues. They added Vistra Energy to their U.S. 1 list, reiterating their buy rating on their positive leverage to natural gas and power prices. Uh, so, Dan, would you be more cautious uh, for those who are picking up nat gas on uh, these kinds of calls? I like I like the stocks better than I like the commodity. I mean, we've got six dollar natural gas um, up from two. And so that to me says it's a seasonal trade uh, as opposed to a structural trade. We've got a lot of reserves, a lot of ability to drill here. So I think you just need to be cognizant that We've got a moment in time that things are quite tight. They're going to stay tight for a while. We dug this hole over five years. We'll dig out of it, you know, over the next five quarters. So I think you, I think you just have to know going in that $6 is not the number you're going to have for the next three or four years. It's, it's a, a next year kind of thing. Well, that, again, would be welcome news, Halima, because it could be, I mean, I don't, you, you never like to read these kinds of warnings about what's going, you know, price spikes are one thing, shortages are another, and Russia playing such a key role both in oil and nat gas supplies. No, absolutely. And Russian supply has underperformed recently. We've had it underperforming in terms of oil output and certainly in terms of gas output. And one of the big questions is, has Russia been deliberately restricting gas supplies into Europe in order to push a German regulator to approve the Nord Stream 2 pipeline? Or are there problems with their upstream capacity? And there are real concerns that even if Nord Stream 2 is approved tomorrow, there's simply not enough additional Russian gas to be able to provide to European markets if there is an unseasonably cold winter. This is essentially becoming a question about what is the weather going to be. And if we get a cold winter, there's going to be hard choices between, you know, power for consumers and power for energy intensive industry. So this could be a really serious economic and public health challenge in places in Europe if we don't have enough gas going into these markets. Yeah. And even if the price starts to roll over now, you know, it's already the die is kind of cast uh, for what that's going to mean for the next couple of months time. I want to mention a couple of the renewables headlines and just get everybody's kind of final thoughts here on positioning. The White House is reportedly backing plans to let renewable energy firms form MLPs, Master Limited Partnerships. It would allow renewable energy companies the same access to the tax advantage partnerships traditionally the oil and gas industry has used for building pipeline and storage infrastructure. So, Dan, I know that you have actually kind of had a foot in both worlds lately. We've talked about this uh, over the past several months' time. Would you be interested in renewables MLPs? How big a catalyst could this be for further growth there and maybe to further depress the economics uh, and, and attractiveness of some parts of the fossil fuel space. Yeah, I think that the MLP structure would, would accomplish from a Washington perspective exactly what they want, which is it would encourage capital into the renewables sector. It would give them a tax break. You'd have more, uh, more money flowing into the sector, which would increase the supply of wind, solar, batteries, et cetera. So um, I, I think it's, I think it's a, a plan that fits with what Washington wants to accomplish. Uh, Valuation is always the issue. Renewable valuations are a little bit high right now, so you'd have to look at the individual securities. But as a concept, I think it makes a lot of sense 
and you will find investor appetite for it. I see here that you're also you're keeping an eye on the Rivian IPO. Uh, to kind of look at some of the performance there. That you like some of the copper, lithium space, and, and that kind of thing. Gina, I know people are seeing if commodities. We talk about commodity super cycles, but will it be kind of like the new commodity space that really defines this next era of investment? Well, I think that, that the energy transition really is going to require an intense amount of capital. And I'm not sure that NLP is going to be the, the necessarily the, the, the best way to get that done. Because if you look at where the capital is, some of the biggest balance sheets that are available are actually going to be effectively the, the would-be competitors to NLPs, which are the actual corporations themselves. Uh, so you look at Royal Dutch Shell, um, who have pretty ambitious plans. Um, so, you know, I... I just a year ago, we were talking about the death of the NLP structure. So I find it interesting that we're sort of not only trying to, you know, resurrect it, but also trying to give it a, a, a greater role in the, in the sort of capital uh, allocation role. So I, I'm not sure NLPs are necessarily, I think it's a good plan. But I'm not sure that's how it's going to play out. All right. Well, we have to leave it there. You know, this D.C. stuff steals some of our time. But we'll have we uh, maybe next week, the week after we can redo Energy Rapid Fire. I uh, really appreciate everybody coming together today to dig into some of these topics. Thank you, guys, all. Halima Croft, Dan Pickering and Gina Sanchez. The Pine Tree State, that would be Maine, passing a new law to keep things green. Diana Olick is up in Portland with that story today. Diana. Kelly, it's all about the rising cost of recycling and how that's crushing Maine taxpayers. The state is about to change all that and possibly reduce some of this garbage, which, trust me, would be a good thing. That's all coming up next on The Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. Maine passing a new law that requires companies to pay for their own recycling. It could also cost consumers. Diana Olick is up in Portland today with more on this story. Hi, Diana. Hi, Kelly. Yeah, Maine's new law will shift the rising cost of recycling from taxpayers to companies large and small, from Amazon to Walmart to small local Maine businesses. It will require companies to produce that produce packaging to pay into a fund to recycle it. The fund reimburses local municipalities. What that does is creates economic incentives for the producers of packaging to create less packaging, to offer more reusable packaging options, and make what packaging we do have left recyclable. But some of the largest sellers of packaged goods, that is Maine grocers, warn it could actually increase prices for consumers. The retailers are concerned in general um, about overall inflation rates and price hikes and what that means for the overall cost of goods and what folks are bringing home in their shopping carts. But some big multinational companies are already on board. More than 150, including Coca-Cola, Unilever and Walmart, recently signed a pledge saying to solve the packaging waste and pollution crisis, there must be mandatory programs in which all industry players introducing packaging to the market provide funding dedicated to collecting and processing their packaging after its use. Now, the state of Oregon already has a similar law going through its legislature, and we're expecting to see other states follow suit. Kelly? Diana, I thought there was a whole issue. I don't remember if it was Chinese demand drying up or what have you, that sometimes the issue is not just the cost of the recycling, but literally the buyers of the product, although perhaps industry recycling it into other products has always been a key part of that supply chain. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. It started in 2018 when China decided that it wouldn't buy certain types of American recycled products. And that actually reduced the amount of revenue coming into local municipalities by $400 million. And that was what was really hitting taxpayers. So it is, again, about the cost of recycling, which is actually a commodity, Kelly. A good example of when China isn't there, uh, the U.S. bears more of the cost. Diana, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Incredible pictures there as well. Diana Olick up in Portland today. Sticking with cardboard and delivery demands, we will hear from the CEO of Shutterfly next about the ongoing paper shortage, how that's impacted business, along with everything else plaguing these manufacturers today. We're back in a minute. Welcome back, everybody. A pandemic surge in demand for boxes and packing materials is now impacting paper production. Nearly 20 percent of North American printing and writing paper has come in uh, offline uh, since the start of last year, according to an industry report. Combine that with supply chain issues and a shortage of labor. could be kind of dicey for those holiday cards. Joining me now is Hillary Schneider. She is the CEO of Shutterfly, a privately owned photo product company we always think of as a digital company, Hillary. That's why we're emphasizing uh, the extent to which you guys are so involved with this paper supply chain. How bad is it out there? So the impact to the supply chain and paper in particular is very real. Uh, There is less capacity. And as the uh, COVID crisis uh, gets further into the rearview mirror and the economy reaccelerates, the capacity isn't there to meet all the demand. Uh, I would say from our perspective, uh, we saw it coming as early as March. And so we're able, given our scale, to advance order and bring in more inventory to ensure that we're able to meet the demands of the holiday season. Um, But this is a concern that will be with us for a while. You know, so you have a, a literally a shortage of paper itself. Uh, you have mail problems, which I don't know if they're coincidental or not. But last week I tried to mail a birthday card to my mother-in-law. Priority mail, $8. It took a week and a half. It went all around the country for a reason I, I couldn't pretend to understand. And so when we think about all of those issues coming to a head with trying to get holiday cards out, I feel like I need to put in my orders right about now. That's a really good instinct. <laughs> so <laughs> I think the number one thing... Um, so. On the positive side, we have procured the supply. Um, We also have some really good consumer intelligence that suggests that there will be a material increase uh, in 2021 of the percentage of Americans who send uh, holiday cards uh, up from about 34% intent last year to 44% intent this year. Uh, And so we have uh, the supply to meet that demand But shipping has become precarious as the demand across all the shipping uh, providers, there's more demand than supply, and it's definitely impacting pricing of shipping as well as variability of delivery time. Yeah, so I have to imagine, and it already can be kind of pricey to order, you know, bulk. You know, I love doing it with the photo personalizations, all that. So, you know, these things aren't cheap. And I have to imagine that all of those costs get passed along in some form to the consumer. So, you know, from you guys as a business point of view, how is it all affecting profit margins? We haven't even talked about labor, which is, of course, another key uh, sort of headwind here. Um, how are you managing it as a business? I, I, and, you know, do we expect this to be kind of a one-time bump up in the price of everything? Or, or how does it look to you? Yeah, so it's interesting, and I would say it's evolving. Um, We are seeing definitely uh, cost pressures on uh, our supply chain. 
We have definitely had to increase labor costs to meet the peak demand we have for life touch and yearbooks and school photos and Q4 for consumer. Uh, and then we have the shipping charges. Now, one of the advantages is we have is we operate at a tremendous scale. And so as volume goes up, we have some operating efficiencies to offset part of that price increase. Um, but over time, if these um, increased costs stick with us, it will translate to higher consumer prices. Yeah. Well, you know, again, I think it's it's eye opening uh, that this is going to be a very different kind of holiday season. And uh, the more that both consumers and business can do to prepare, the better. Hillary, yeah, I would say, Kelly, to your point on um, buy early, I would recommend it in general for everyone across all categories because it is the best way to avoid the, um, the holiday surcharges. And it's the best way to ensure that you have the products you want for the yeah. holiday. And it's the worst thing for someone like me to hear. So <laughs> challenge accepted. Uh, Hillary, thanks for your time today. And good luck. Hillary Schneider is the CEO of Shutterfly. Let's take a look at some, how some of the paper stocks have done this year. International paper is falling today, but up 14 percent since January. Weyerhaeuser also down today, but up 7 percent this year. Both stocks have more than doubled since their pandemic lows. Still coming up, the U.S. crypto investors face a ton of uncertainty. We'll hear from a woman behind the world's largest crypto fund about the risks she's seeing and the opportunities right after this. Welcome back. Bitcoin and Ether rebounding today up five to six percent. But Bitcoin is still down more than 11 percent for the month. Kate Rooney spoke with the co-founder of the world's largest crypto fund about what she sees as the biggest risks for investors in this space with all the regulatory headwinds swirling around. And she joins me now. Hi, Kate. Hey, Kelly. I sat down with Katie Hahn for Delivering Alpha. She is the general partner at Andreessen Horowitz and co-runs the firm's three crypto funds, the most recent it's about $2 billion. She says the biggest risk right now is regulatory uncertainty. She says it's a myth that the crypto industry wants to be the Wild West, as it's often described. She calls it disappointing that the SEC has targeted companies like Coinbase. She is on the board of that company, which she says, though, are trying to follow the rules. Regulation cannot be one size fits all. We think regulation plays a really important role. A lot of people, there's a myth out there that, you know, those in the crypto industry don't want regulation. And that is actually, I can say, a myth. It's not that the industry does not want regulation. I always say it wants clarity, but it also does not want to be treated as a monolith. Like we, if you think about something like an NFT or a token, essentially a digital collectible right now, like uh, what would have in the olden days been a equivalent of a in real life kind of baseball card. Why should that be regulated as a financial product and service? We don't think it should be. Another risk, Kelly, competition from China. And there's some nuance here. While Beijing has outlawed most crypto activity, it's also built its own central bank digital currency or CBDC. She says, make no doubt China will tie things like trade and loans to their own stable coin. Han tells me, that the U.S. should do the opposite by allowing innovation and working with the private sector here. And she says the U.S. needs to move a little bit faster to keep up with the pace of innovation, at least on stable coins. Kelly. I thought it was very interesting how she drew that contrast with China and maybe saying we should do the opposite. It was a great interview. Kate, thanks very much for bringing us the highlights. Our Kate Rooney. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. 
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.